right, if you've been around here long enough, you know I'm Brett. It's good to see everybody. Glad to see especially our guests. Yeah, that's who I am. And I, 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 I normally, I like, I like to make sure that I'm haberdasherly together. That means that I coordinate my dress. Red socks, red shirt, red stripes in the jacket, brown, brown, kind of, kind of, Cordovan with a little red and brown <laughs> tie, red, brown, a little. I work it. This was not a part of the plan. But I love our youth. So I stand with them. Turn with me over to the book of John. We're going to continue our series that we began a couple of weeks ago called The Spirit-Filled Life. The title of this message is You Must Be Born Again. You Must Be Born Again. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, and, and for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, and Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Lord, help us as we study. Four points. Nicodemus addresses Christ. Christ addresses Nicodemus. Nicodemus answers Christ, and then Christ answers Nicodemus. Jesus said, just cleansed the temple, a rather inflammatory act. Everybody was wondering, who is this guy? Now, there were words that had been kind of spread around that this Jesus had been pretty pretty great up in Nazareth and that he had done some things to announce his coming. And they began to look at his parentage and didn't know exactly what to think about that, though they would use it in an accusatory fashion to say he's illegitimate. But we believe that, that the rulers had probably done some homework on this guy. And that Nicodemus, being one of the rulers of the Jews and a member of the Pharisees, had some standing in Jerusalem that gave him some clout. If you were religious and you were a ruler, in your religious order that also gave you political clout there was no separation of church and state then that's an American thing I'm not saying it's bad or good I'm just giving you the, the lay of the land and so this man had a lot of power in Jerusalem and Jesus had just cleansed the temple now when we say cleansed the temple that is a, a nice, nice euphemism to say he beat folk up he went into the temple and this was at the inauguration of his ministry now. He had been to the temple many times and had seen 
the things weren't being done according to the original plan. That the temple was supposed to be a place where people were, were to come and worship. And they had intentionally built a thing called the court of the Gentiles. A space where Gentile believers could come in and worship God. People like us, believers in the Jewish faith. Jews were allowed to go a little bit closer and the priests were allowed to go in the temple. But there was a court where the Gentiles could come and pray, meaning the nations could come and find God. But that had been taken up by some people who wanted to make a dollar. And so the, the, the primary way to worship God back then was not just to do what we do and congregationally sing and, and pray and, and hear a word. It was to sacrifice something. So if you had sinned or you wanted to fellowship with God in a special way, you could give a votive offering, which was a free will offering. Just give it because you love him. You give it because you're thankful. And, but that required usually some animal. There were vegetable offerings that you could give, but some required a turtle dove or a lamb or an ox or a goat. And people who were economically inclined and entrepreneurial in their orientation would say, wait a minute, now people are coming here, they know they have to give sacrifice, so why don't I just provide? Let me see if I can talk to the leaders of the temple and see if I can get a little booth over here. So the shepherds wouldn't have an issue because they could bring their sheep, but not everyone was a shepherd, so somebody would have to buy a sheep if sheep was the primary way somebody needed to sacrifice that day or buy a turtle dove. or somebody. And so there were all kinds of people setting up booths and kiosks being the one-stop shop for sacrifice. The problem is, number one, they were taking up the space that was important for the Gentiles to pray. There's nothing wrong with selling things in church. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you providing places for people to do that for which the church has been established? To be discipled, to pray, to worship, to honor God. There was only one spot for these Gentiles to be, and they had taken it up with a mall. Jesus was mad because it was his dad's house. He said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And you, you haven't just taken it up with a mall. You've made it a den of thieves. So it's not that they were just conducting commerce. They were stealing from folk. How? Well, when you go, when you go to Nats Park... Or FedEx Field. You know you can go to, to, to Giant over here and buy 10 hot dogs <laughs> and 8 buns. <laughs> mm. 10 hot dogs and 8 buns for about $4. But you go to FedEx Field, it's going to cost you eight fifty for one hot dog. One hot dog. Why? Because they got you. They got you. You're in the building. You can't get out. You want to eat. You're hungry. You got to pay $8 for a hot dog. That's what they were doing in this place. Robin, that sheep would normally cost 50 bucks. It's two fifty now. And not only were the people making money who were selling it, the priests and the Levites, they were also taking their cut. Jesus was hot. You aren't serving the people. You're robbing them. And he sat there, and he watched what was going on. And while he watched, it says he made a whip. Now, we're not talking about Jesus going off the handle here. This is calculated. He's sitting there taking pieces of leather and stringing them together and <laughs> braiding them. And the disciples are thinking, what in the world is he? 
man, you do something wrong? I don't think I did anything, bro. I don't think I did anything. He's making a whip. He's making a whip. And after he finished, he proceeded to go through the mall and knock over every kiosk and start beating people with his whip. Not a very tender way to introduce your ministry. <laughs> Nobody was hurt, but everybody got the message. Stop this foolishness. That got the attention of all the people who had religious power in Jerusalem to such an extent that they sent Nicodemus, meaning the religious folks, sent Nicodemus to Jesus at night. Now, some people will say, <clears throat> commentaries, that Nicodemus had some real uh, interest in Christ's ministry at this time, and he was coming to him at night because he didn't want the religious leaders to understand that he was interested in who Jesus was and really wanted to become a follower. They say that because it's evidenced at the end of Jesus' life that Nicodemus is actually, or in the, even in the middle of his ministry, that Nicodemus is defending Christ in front of the leaders that want to do, do harm to him. And at his burial, he brings all the necessary uh, spices. It says 100 pounds of spices. And that's expensive. Myrrh, frankincense, those were serious. That was the top of the line in terms of perfumes. No cologne. You know the difference, don't you? For those of you who don't, cologne is brute. By the way, they ain't making new fragrances. Axe is recycled brute. I wore brute in high karate when I was a kid. When my boys started putting on axe, I said, I know that. I don't, you ain't got to tell me. I, that's brute. That's brute right there. That's brute. They're my cologne, $15 over at Walmart. Perfume, $250 an ounce. Frankincense and myrrh, finest stuff. That's what you used in order to help embalm. 100 pounds of it. So he was providing quite a bit. He cared for the body of Christ. So the commentators are saying, well, he was always interested. I don't know. Because nothing about this exchange says he was initially interested. In fact, Everything about it says he's not, and that he's not coming on his own personal mission, in that it says, we know that no one can do the things you can do unless God is with him. If he's interested, he says, listen, I know you. I see what you do. You're amazing, and nobody can do the stuff you can do unless, but he says, we, meaning I am representing all those other religious leaders out there who want to know exactly what your agenda is. And he came to him at night. Why? Because he probably didn't want the populace to see that a religious leader, a ruler of the Jews, was actually coming and being confused with somebody who would be endorsing. So he comes under the cover of darkness, representing, using the personal pronoun in the third person in order to describe who he's representing. We know with a platitude that nobody can do the things you can do. unless God. He's, he's flattering him. Giving him, he's, he, he wants to have a serious conversation, but he needs some anesthesia. And Jesus cuts through all of it. Nicodemus addresses Jesus. Jesus addresses Nicodemus and doesn't even speak according to the statement that Nicodemus is, is saying. Just out of the blue. Um, you can't, 
You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What did that have to do with what I just said? Jesus sees through all of your agendas, all of the reasons that you're coming, everything that you want to do in order to curry favor. Lift your hands. Worship. If your heart isn't right, he sees it all. You can fool me for a minute. A minute. But you can't fool him for a second. He sees it all. He knows exactly why Nicodemus is coming to him. And we all come with our agenda to God, don't we? We are always trying to say, I'm coming to you because I have a need now. I need you to fix this. I need you to adjust this. I need you to help me. I need you to get on my page. And this is why Nicodemus is coming. Please, we're in Jerusalem. This is the capital city. You just messed up the entire temple. We need to know whose side you're on. And we'd like to know that it's ours. God is not on your side. He's for you. But he's not on your side. And if you want some sympathy, talk to Joshua. Just before Joshua was going into the promised land to take possession of that which God told him he was to take, Joshua hadn't done anything wrong yet. He had not sinned. He had not made a mistake. He had just inherited everything that Moses had given. Moses had died. Joshua was in charge. Hands laid on, commissioned, approved by Almighty God. Joshua crosses over. He's beginning to to, to look at Jericho and, and, and take the survey of the city. And he sees this guy. And he never seen a guy like he'd seen this guy. Nobody had been. Who are you? I'm captain of the Lord of hosts. Which side are you on? Wrong question. Whose side are you on? God's not on your side. I know you want him to co-stamp your your agenda, but he's not on your side, yet he's for you. Your eyesight is, is too dim. You're too myopic. You can't see far enough in advance. And, and you bring your plans to him, hoping that he's going to say yes. But he, he's not interested in your plans. He's sympathetic to your situation. But your plans are one of two things, either too small or all wrong. Those are the only two categories in which your plans fit. And so it would be wrong for him who knows all things, beginning, end, middle, To endorse, which is too small or all wrong. And so he does everything he possibly can to try to get you on his plan. Thus, Nicodemus, I know you want me to join you, but let me help you since you're here. Even though you're representing them, I'm going to touch your heart. You can't even see what you're talking about. You think you're representing the kingdom, but you can't even see it until you're born again. You think you have a kingdom agenda, but you do not because you don't even know what you are. Your vision is too small or it's all wrong, Nick. You got to see, but you can't see unless you come through a different birth canal. Being born again allows you the privilege of having your eyesight restored to you. And you don't even know that you're blind until you come out. You don't know it. I mean, you, you, those of you who have not been born again, 
And born again is a metaphor. I know it's been thrown around a lot, and there are categorized people. Either you're born again or you're, you're not a born again believer. You're a believer, but you're not born again. Listen, all believers are born again. Every one of them. They may not like the term, but all it means is this. You've surrendered your life to him. And you said, I'm, I'm, I'm now coming under your leadership. You are my Lord for the rest of my days. And I'm going to do what you say. Wherever you tell me to go, I'm going to go. I'm going to obey you. And I'm not going to take the steering wheel of my own life and drive me where I want to go. You got it. I'm the passenger. That's what it means. Now, if you want to call it born again, I'm fine. That's great. That's what Jesus said. It. But you don't see that same term used throughout the book of Acts. What you see is repent. And so everything is couched in this idea of what we've made born again to be. And don't get caught up on the term. Get caught up on the concept that you need a new life. You need to start all over again. Because you cannot see unless you come through the spiritual birth canal. You have no idea what God wants to do with you. Listen, I have been born again. And I'm still trying to figure out what tomorrow holds. I mean, I see a lot. I, I build my life around the vision that God has given, but I don't see it all. And the more consecrated or refined spiritually that I get, the better I see. You got to come through the, the, the birth canal of repentance, which is, I'm not going to live the way I'm living anymore. I choose to turn. Repentance means to turn, change, do a 180. I'm not going that way. I'm going that way. I'm going to follow my God with all of my heart. Repentance is different than forgiveness, though they are inexorably tied. Forgiveness is this. It's an appeal for restored relationship. When you ask somebody to forgive you, you're not just saying you're sorry. Sorry precedes forgiveness. That represents remorse, that you are really apologetic about what you've done, and you can't stand that you did it. Asking for forgiveness really should come after you repent. Because nobody can really know whether they should restore relationship to you. Forgiveness means don't hold this against me anymore. I want to be restored back to you. Nobody can really know whether they should restore you back to them unless you said, I'm not going to do it again. So if you say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, but you don't repent, well, the person who slapped you on Tuesday might slap you on Wednesday. You say, wait, 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 you just said you were sorry. No, but I ain't changed. I still don't like you. I still don't like you. Now, that, 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 that's a very simplistic idea of what repentance should not look like. But it's important for us to understand what we are to do in God, that we are to be remorseful. That remorse is supposed to lead us to the concept of repentance that says, I don't want to do this anymore. That's bad. It made me feel bad. It hurt other people. The consequences were terrible. I'm going to stop that. And those that I hurt, please forgive me. I want to be back in right relationship with you. That's how that works. And when you do it according to the will of God, it says in 2 Corinthians 7, that it leads to a salvation, not only salvation eternally, but salvation from that thing you just did so you don't do it again. I'm saved from my own wicked act. Leads to a salvation so I don't repeat it, and it leaves no regret, meaning I don't want to go back, and I'm happy that I don't want to go back. That's what born again looks like. I repented 36, seven years ago. And I haven't repented of my repentance. I'm so happy. I have no regret. I love God and I love living this way. Is it hard? Yes. Oh, impossible. I need God every day to live right. But it produces the greatest fruit. 
Listen, the Christian life is the best way to go. It produces the best version of humanity. And those who are a part of it treat humanity best. If you are a good Christian, you are really good anything else. You're a great plumber. Why? Because you're doing your work as unto the Lord and you don't skimp. You're not trying to put a, 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 a less than quality pipe in a spot and trying to charge more for it. If you are a good Christian, you're an excellent secretary because you want to represent the people that you are speaking to as, as if the person that you're representing is, is speaking to them themselves. And so that they say, man, that person really treats you. I bet they help you a lot. You are. And it, if you're a good Christian, you're an excellent employee in anything because you show up early and, and you're not trying to take credit for a job. Oh, we just had a women's moment yesterday. It was amazing. Yes, it was. Women's was amazing. Amazing. I know because I sat in the entire thing. I was right back there in the back listening and watching. And it was some, some dear lady. I can't remember her name, but she was on the panel. And she began to talk. And she, she was a manager. And she saw that there were some managerial things that were being handled by somebody over, over whom she was watching and, and, and had supervisory authority. And that that person was actually doing the job whereby she didn't have to do her job anymore. She went to, she went to her supervisor. <laughs> this is a believer at our church. Went to... CEO, excuse me, that's why you need a couple of women in your life. CEO. <laughs> Went to her CEO and said, you don't need my job anymore. You can, you can cut my job out. Who does that? <laughs> Fire me. Why? Because she loved her company and she wanted to be responsible. She loved her super. She, she cared about more than just herself. Now, I don't know all the story. All I got was the highlights. But it turned out that she got a promotion. When you're a good Christian, you're a good everything else. Because all the principles of integrity and honesty just flow out of you. And you become an example of who Jesus would be if he were working at Chick-fil-A. And some people believe he does. to be born again in order for your eyes to see what God wants to do with you. Now, there are those who grew up in traditional high-reformed churches, and some churches are really low-reformed, and that doesn't mean quality. There are categories in ecclesiology where we look at Catholics and Episcopalians and Lutherans as being more high-reformed. And Catholics wouldn't consider themselves reformed at all, but high church. And then you've got Methodists and Baptists down here because and they, they don't do all of the, the uh, uh, liturgy that you would see done in the higher churches. And so there are categories. But the, the common thing between those groups, along with the Presbyterians, is that they believe in infant baptism. And so you can baptize your child some, somewhere before two or three months and and somehow they're saved. Now, I don't, I don't have any real theological problem with that because there were so many people for 1,500 years that were right with God and did not do adult baptism. So you've got Athanasius, who is a powerful man of God in the church, and you've got John Calvin, and you've got Luther, and you have all these wonderful human beings that love God with all their heart. 
I do have a problem with it pragmatically. So I'm not, if, if I talk about it theologically and diss it, then I am discounting all those wonderful people upon whom shoulders I stand. I can't do that. But I can talk about the pragmatism in that if your life did not reflect that which was consistent with your baptism, not to mean that you were per perfect because nobody is, but if it didn't reflect that kind of upward ascent through Mount Zion to God on a regular basis, something didn't take. Something's wrong. Either the faith that your parents had wasn't as complete as it should have been for, for them to disciple you into what you should be, or you rejected it. One or the other. And if you reject, then you need to make a decision. And even if it worked out well, you still need to make a decision because you have to decide, God has to be my God, not just my parents, because God doesn't have any grandkids. He's only got children. So at some point, you've got to say, he is my God. I'm accountable to him. However you want to describe that, a decision needs to be made at some point in somebody's life to say he is my Lord. And that is tantamount to being born again. It just simply means you get to start all over. Now, what Nicodemus says, as I close, is, is profound. He says, how can a man jump inside mama again? Now, this response tells you a little bit about the level of offense he's got, because this is really a rhetorically stupid question. <laughs> he's not trying to have an intellectual conversation. It's not two PhDs discussing here. He's offended that Jesus did not listen to his statement. How can a man jump inside mama when he's old? Now, if you listen carefully to what he's saying, he's not just saying, how can a man jump inside mama? He's also revealing a little bit of his own, own experience in the midst of his offense. Because he's offended now. He's brought it down to an argument level, not a conversation level. But he's bled in a little bit of his own being in there. I'm an old man. I don't know how to restart. I don't know how to restart. I've got some habit patterns I've done. I've, I've, I've lived this way a long. I don't know how. I don't know how. But he doesn't want to be vulnerable when Jesus doesn't seem to have respected his platitudes. And so he's going to try to come at, come at him again. But he's revealing something. And I want you to know, it doesn't matter how long you've been wrong. There is never a bad time to make a great decision. And God can come and help you. If you are old, it doesn't matter. Um, we were traveling to Hawaii. Somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to go. Somebody. We were called to preach there, and, and a friend of mine asked me to preach in church. So we were going last summer. Cynthia and I spent our 30th early. Our anniversary is in December. We spent our 30th early out there because it was a free trip. It was great. <laughs> and uh, we stopped off in San Francisco, and then we caught an, a connecting flight. And, and I got bumped up to first class, and Cynthia didn't. I'm giving you just enough rope. So I gave her my seat. I heard you. I heard you. I heard you. And so I went to sit in coach. And she sat by a man who was 100 years old. 
100 years old. He was going to a birthday party of someone who was 102. <laughs> coming back? Coming back. Yeah, wife's helping again. She was coming back from a birthday party. The guy was 102. Okay, so he lives in Maui. And we were flying to Maui. It was a five, about five, six-hour flight from San Francisco. And he liked my wife. But I was fine with that. <laughs> he had no chance. I, he's 100 years old. Are you kidding me? My wife's gorgeous. I admired his taste, really. I thought you... <laughs> but on that five-hour trip, my wife led him to Jesus. And he was so grateful when he got off that plane. 100 years old. Met his son when we picked up the bags. It was great. 100 years old. There's never a bad time to make a great decision. You're not too old. And you haven't lived too wrong too long. Today is your day to be filled with God's spirit and be regenerated because this is the only way we can live. You can't see the kingdom that is supposed to be your inheritance, a place where we are to live. We're supposed to live in the kingdom. If you are living in the kingdom, you are outside of your home. You are homeless spiritually. We're supposed to live in the kingdom. You can't even see it unless you're born again. How can a man climb inside his mama a second time? What's born of flesh is flesh. What's born of spirit is spirit. You must be born of water and spirit. Now, some people will say that Jesus is referring to baptism there. Mm, I don't mind that. I don't think that's the original intent. Because he's talking about what's born of flesh is flesh. And what's born of spirit is spirit. And I think he's talking about the stuff through which all of us have to come if we enter into this world. Meaning that when a woman is ready to give birth, what breaks? water. They didn't call it amniotic fluid back then. They called it water. So when we talk about what Jesus was referring to, he's saying, you came into this world through water, but you have to come into the world of the kingdom through the spirit. That's why you must be born again. The spirit wants to touch your life and help you Change who you are at the core so you can be what you ought to be when he thought about creating you. And if you are not born again, you aren't even close because you can't see it yet. But I'm telling you, when you see it, life changes for the better. I, I beg you today, if you're not born again, give your heart to him that you may begin to live life in the spirit. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for all your goodness and grace. Empower us and help us to be the kind of people who can love you well and live right.